Hello, and welcome back to the Iowa Type Theory Commute. We are in Chapter 2 of this podcast, talking about functional programming. Recently, we've been talking about how functional programming facilitates writing really concise programs, uh, and we're going to, I'd like to continue talking about an aspect related to this. Um, we touched last time on how category theory is related to programming in a point-free style. And just to review that, because these, neither of those concepts may be familiar to you who are listening to this, um, point-free style means that, as I explained not too long ago, means we're writing functions not by saying what they do on an input. That's the point. You know, when we say, oh, let's explain what a function f does by saying what f of x equals, you know, what's, what x is the input. So that's a style with points, you know, so the, the uh, point-free style is saying, let's say what a function is by just, just saying how you build it out of other functions without actually explicitly calling anything. Um, of course, you know, in a real programming language, under the hood, something eventually is getting called, but there's just sort of a style of programming where we say, well, this function is equal to um, a certain combination of these two or three other functions. Um, for concreteness, um, let's say you were trying to write a function that's going to go down a singly linked list. Uh, it's going to go through a list of data values, and um, let's say it's going to add 10. Let's say it's a list of numbers. It's going to go down and add 10 to every uh, value in the list. And since this is pure functional programming we're talking about, the idea is that we're going to build a new list that's very similar to the old list, except now every in every position the number has had 10 added to it. So let's say we're going to write this function that goes through the list that adds 10 to every element. So 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 is going to turn into um, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. And one way you could write this is to say, well, this function, the add 10 function, is going to take in a list and it's going to decompose this list and recurse through it, uh, adding 10 to each element and rebuilding the list as it goes. This is pure functional programming. So we're going to build a new list. And um, you could write this out explicitly taking in an input list X, let's say, and um, doing pattern matching on it. We talked about data type notation in pure functional languages, or in, in all functional languages, really. Uh, all styles of functional language. Um, but there's a different way, a kind of nice way to write this, actually really nice way to write this. Um, there's already, in virtually every functional programming language, there's already a function called map. What map does is if you give it a function and a list, it's going to run through the list, applying the function to each element of the list and rebuilding a new list as the result. So if you said map of some function f on the list 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you're going to get the list back that's f of 1, f of 2, f of 3, f of 4, f of 5. Hey, that's just what we could use, couldn't we, to uh, define this add 10 function that we might be interested in. So we who are, for whatever reason, need to perform this operation of adding 10 to the elements of a list, we could we look around in our standard library, or we're, we don't hopefully already know this, that there is a map function. We say, great, we can use that. And in point-free style, then, we can just say, well, add 10 equals map of the, the plus 10. Maybe I should have said add 10 to list. Let's say add 10 to list equals map of add 10. So what does this mean? Well, it means the add 10 to list function is defined as 
equaling the function you get when you call map on just an add, add 10 function. In a language like Haskell, we can write a short little expression um, with something they call a section for adding 10. But imagine we just had lying around some other function that adds 10 to a number. So it takes a number and returns 10 plus a number. Um, and so saying map add 10 is um, an example of point-free programming. There was no need to give a name to the input list x. We could have said add 10 of x equals map, or sorry, I keep messing my names up. Add 10 to list of x equals map of add 10 to x. We could have done that, but there's really no need to name that input x directly or to give it a name. We can just say that we just give you sort of the, the whole definition of the function without referring to a point, without referring to the input. So just map add 10 would do the job. And hey, that's pretty cool. That's a short little program. Um, is it that much shorter than saying add 10 to list of x equals map add 10 x? Yeah, it's a little bit shorter. We didn't have to name the input. We saved now a couple of uh, you know lexical tokens. Um, and uh, so anyway, so that's that's an example of sort of point-free programming. And good functional programmers take advantage of this to keep their code a little shorter. Um, and uh, the you know we're talking about the connection with category theory, where. Um, because category theory is a, a, a rather abstract view, a very abstract view of different mathematical structures, just in terms of functions, but not functions sort of presupposing set theory. So they're just, we just have some things, they call them morphisms, that intuitively it's at least initially helpful to think of as functions, but they're not set theoretic functions. They definitely do not have to be in general, and they're not. Um, they're just something that represents some way of going from an object A to an object B. And so category theories, um, you know, so the sort of interesting thing for functional programming, you know, category theory was hardly invented to facilitate functional programming. This is not the goal at all. Um, but it actually turned out, and this one, I guess one could say this should be counted to the credit of category theory as a, as a useful human endeavor, as a useful theory, is that this idea of just abstracting away from the set theoretic details of functions and just thinking about maps or morphisms or whatever you want to call them, going from one thing to another, um, this idea is like a perfect fit for functional programming. With It perfectly supports this point-free style of functional programming because you know if the functions are not set theoretic functions, we don't actually call them. We just glue them together in various ways. Um, and the, the basics of category theory only tell you that you can compose these functions. That's actually the only way you can glue them together, just compose functions. And there are identity functions that exist. So you can always just go from an object A to an object A with an identity function. Um, uh, sorry, an identity morphism, right? It's not a function. There are categories where they are functions, but there are many categories where they're not. Um, but other categories, so the typical way of proceeding in category theory is to say, well... It's very nice that we have composition that's basic to all categories, but we need a little more structure than that for this or that reason. And so let's suppose we're working in a category that has some further additional structure that gives that tells you certain other kinds of morphisms exist. And that's how you actually sort of get some traction to do more than just compose abstract functions that you have no other identity for, which would not be useful in programming by itself.
Um, anyway, so that's that's sort of we've been talking about this, and I want to talk a bit more about category three. But I realize, I think before I plunge a little further into that, and again, I'm a total newbie at category theory. I've only been studying it for I don't know six or seven years, uh, in a desultory fashion, um, without formal proper training and um, with, with only the mildest of success in getting a lot of the ideas. But um, uh, before I get into that, I, there's one point I've been waiting to make, and this seems like a pretty good time, which is that uh, with, uh, with point-free programming, or in general, we have this sort of tension, and, and functional programming kind of illustrates this well, I think, that um, you know, when you're writing in a very rather verbose language like Java or something like this, um, you write down all this stuff, and it's really kind of a pain. But on the other hand, when you go look at your code, you see all this information. It's all there. And in fact, it's been checked by the compiler. When you say, oh, this input argument has this type, and this local variable has that type, the compiler has double-checked that, yes, yes, that all makes sense. And so you get a kind of rather a lot of machine-checked documentation about your program um, through this kind of extra information. And so there is this kind of tension. Now, if we're trying to get rid of that kind of verbosity, then all of a sudden our programs are shorter, all right, but we stare at them and they're, they're like much more cryptic. And boy, this is really, this really can be true for programs written in point-free style, let's say, or written in, in these kind of languages that facilitate, as they absolutely should, you know, writing really concise programs. But these programs can be can, very short to write, but not easy to understand um, because there's just, they're just so, they're brief and they're the higher order nature of things um, means you have to sort of follow in your head how control is going to flow through these programs and what's going to happen. And this can be hard to do. And so the point I wanted to make is um, the way out of this difficulty is simply, I believe, simply to have better interfaces um, so that what you write down, you write down something really short and small, but the compiler then provides you with an enormous amount of other information in a nice sort of on-demand fashion. The, the days of the compiler, you know, where it reads in the program and just spits out line by line some error messages, um, I think it's um, quite appalling that we, we still are living in those days. Personally, in our project here called Sedil, we do not operate this way. When you get an error message, you don't, you get, um, you check a file and you get back an annotated version of the file. Rather, you get back a, a view of that file in your, um, in your editor that shows you uh, all this interesting information that you need. So what you write, um, from what you write, the compiler is deducing a bunch of stuff, and you can see all that in a nice, easy-to-navigate-through way. You know, what's, what's the type of this sub-expression in my program? What's the type of that sub-expression in my program? That's, that's the main, that's the, the most of what we give you <laughs> in Sedil. Um, we also tell you types of local variables and things like that. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of, it's embarrassing that that's, that's still at best kind of an afterthought for languages. I mean, part of it is the engineering problem of um, the need to sort of commit to an interface, you know, the compiler as a, just an executable, right? It's a separate program. You can, you can use whatever editor you want to create source programs, and then you can just run them through your compiler. And that, that's a useful piece of flexibility, but it comes at the unacceptable price, I think, that um, you're going to get just sort of bad interaction with your compiler, and it's not that easy to understand what's happening with your program. 
say the program, you know, as an extreme point of this, say you have a program that everything's fine. There are no type errors. Everything checks. I can learn nothing about my program by running the compiler. I don't get any information at all. So if I'm looking at some difficult to understand piece of code, I'm getting zero help from a tool that's just, you know, overloaded with information about what's happening in my program. So it's really a crime that the tools are not exporting that kind of information so you can under use it to help understand code, not just kind of get code passing the compiler. Oh, good, it passed the compiler. That's great. Let's let's forget about the compiler now, really. Um, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, of course, people won't forget about the compiler. They need it to actually translate the program to an executable. But um, this idea that kind of like all, the compiler gives us these irritating error messages and we just pray it will finally stop and then our, our program's good to go. No, but you want to understand code after the fact. So you need a tool that tells you all about your program. And of course, you can't just have that as a line-by-line -line dump. You need that as a nice graphical, well, some kind of interface. I mean, we use Emacs, which is a not very graphical interface. But you could have a fancier, um, you know, uh, IDE or whatever. Um, all right. Well, I'm at my destination. I need to, to stop talking. Thank you for listening.